Welcome to the Birthing Instincts Podcast. I'm Dr. Stuart Fishbein, community-based practicing obstetrician and longtime advocate for birth choices. And I'm Bliss Young, a licensed midwife. Join us in our conversational style podcast where we talk about everything birth. Sometimes we laugh, sometimes we cry, but we're happy that you're here. So here we go. This, this is, is a Soul Fire, Fire production. production. So on today's episode, I accidentally called Dr. Ben Lynch, Dr. David Lynch, which is not correct. So I just wanted to direct you to the proper place. Hope you enjoy today's episode. Recording in progress. I always like when recording is in progress. because That means that Bliss is on the other side of the screen. Usually. <laughs> you are. You are usually. So what, right. were saying, what were you saying about my t-shirts? <laughs> Well, your t-shirt today, let me see it. It says hockey dad, like a normal dad, but cooler. <laughs> and I said, you're going to have to start having people send you, they can send me coffee mugs and they can send you t-shirts. Well, I'm going to donate this. I'm going to give you my favorite dumb fuckery mug when I see you next time. Okay. <laughs> okay. It's okay. a deal. <laughs> okay. So. All right. You had a birth. Where are you today? I'm, I just arrived in Santa Barbara. So I'm in Santa Barbara with a friend that I've known since third grade. Talk about some history. Um, so I'm staying with her for a few days before I figure out like where I want to be well, situated great. this month. Yeah. Welcome back yeah. to, and welcome back to SoCal. Yeah, I know. I know. You Today's know, actually Santa Barbara is still considered central coast. I looked it up. Yeah. He's shaking his head. No. It is. You know why? Because I'll tell you, because the south part of Santa Barbara, if you drive um, um, from L.A. to Santa Barbara, people think you're heading north. But you're not. Uh -huh. You're heading due uh -huh. west. And I know mm -hmm. that because when you when I used to fly from Santa Monica to Santa Barbara, you'd fly at 210 degrees, which is straight west. California coastline doesn't turn north until you get to Santa Barbara and then it turns north. Mm -hmm. So the mm -hmm. 101 freeway, which is called the 101 North, is actually the 101 West, also known as the Ventura Highway, which is a great song by America back in the 70s, I think. Uh, today's a great day because even though it won't be played till later, you know what the date is today? I do. I wrote it down. 2-2-22. Yeah. That won't happen. Good day again. to be married. That's but, not going to happen again in our lifetime. That's true. That won't happen again in our oh, lifetime. Oh, yeah. Well, it might. 3333. Oh, I thought you meant 2222 would uh, happen. <laughs> uh, yes. 33. Yeah. yeah. We both will we'll, we'll still be doing the podcast then. 44, 55. You know, we've got maybe some. Not, maybe not podcasting by 44, but 33, <laughs> I still expect us to be podcasting. We won't remember anything. We'll be no. hilarious. <laughs> no, and you know what? I am so oversaturated with data <clears throat> for today's podcast. Which, by the it. way, our main our main topic uh, topic today is going to be hyperemesis gravidarum. Yeah, not. I want to do like nausea into into hyperemesis, but yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. But that's our topic today. But before we get that, I got a lot of stuff as usual. Okay. Um, can I hear about your birth first? Yeah, well, that was what I was going to go to that. We always go to those first. Oh, good. It was my first, I was at a birth yesterday and it was beautiful. Um, it's a water birth, first, first time mom. Um, 
it was great. Uh, the baby had a little problem with transition over the first hour, but we were able to deal with that. And how did you deal with it? Um, patience. Yeah, good. <laughs> good. <laughs> skin to skin, a little bit of percussion, a little bit of postural drainage on the baby. Baby, baby came out in the call. Love it. In the call, there was some meconium. So, mm -hmm. but it wasn't, you know, again, just make the difference between meconium does not imply meconium aspiration syndrome. Let's just, there's a lot, by the way, I lost a hundred uh, followers today, what I call fellow travelers. I lost a hundred of them last week because I posted something by, from Candace Owens. <laughs> so we have, a, we have, I got, I got a good, I got a great snowflake story that I'll talk about in a, in a little bit uh, about people who they love you for what you talk about, but if you have one thing they disagree with, then they, then they can't stand you anymore. It's sort right. of, yeah, it's, I don't understand that because there's very few people in the world that we agree with everything that they, that they, they think. And yet people, they may be birth fanatics. They may love what we talk about in birth, but if I go off the reservation like one inch, oh, you, you, can't, you can't say that, you can't do that. It's a, it's a very troubling world. And I got a little, I'll get to the story of that, but the birth was great. It's my first birth in about seven weeks. Um, I'm gonna be real busy in the next four to five weeks. I've got eight people due, so that should keep me busy. Um, yeah. But it was nice to be back, and it was certainly nice to have a nice, normal birth. It reminded me almost of the very first birth I attended. Uh, it wasn't a water birth then, but it was just a woman birthed on the living room floor, just just sitting, leaning on her couch. And um, it's how I got started in the whole thing. So it's sort of fitting to have these kind of births toward the end of the whole yeah. thing, at least for the while, at least for a while. Yeah, yeah. Um, and... Uh, yeah. So how about you? Anything? You I'm just on call, yeah. just leaving, uh, leaving, um, slow and being in Santa Barbara for the month. And, uh, I've gotten a lot of, um, I'm starting to get a lot of interviews here in Santa Barbara. So that's going to be good to be working. I'm excited about that. Um, yeah. And then I have my workshop, um, my innate journey birth worker workshop on the 19th and 20th. I don't know if this podcast will come out before that, but um, I'm, re I'm really excited about uh, co-leading and facilitating a uh, retreat workshop here in Santa Barbara with Hayes. We have such a good time. And um, the last time we did it was so meaningful that I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Good, that's a bit of positivity. Uh, we're, we're, a good, we're a good yin and yang, you and I, because um, I come up with all the, <laughs> the the distressing articles and the distressing news and you come out with the positive stuff. And I just love that. That's why I love my, my hour with bliss on Wednesday mornings. Isn't um, that great? Hey, that reminds me, can I read? I, I want to read. I'm not asking. I want to read a quick review. Yeah, go right ahead. Okay. Uh, okay. While you're looking for that, on. I want to introduce the, uh, the, prov uh, the provider bell. Okay. <laughs> When I say the wrong word? Yeah, so this is my, my mother got this for 20 years of teaching. It's got, your name is inscribed on it. <laughs> Dina B. Fishbein, an appreciation 69 to 89 Hopkins Public Schools. So I was uh, going through, I was going through a cabinet and I found it and I thought it would be perfect. So every time we say the word provider. <laughs> I 
okay. <laughs> like a teacher. <laughs> like eventually, only Pavlov's dogs. So, um, on the one of the last um podcasts that we recorded, I asked for some reviews. I said, "Hey, it's been a while, you guys, and we got quite a few." But I'm just going to read one today that reminded me on what you just said. So, um, it's titled "A Wealth of Knowledge." And it says, I had the pleasure to meet Dr. Stu during his Reteach Breach conference in Bozeman, Montana, after a year of following him and Bliss on social media. A former Los Angeles native myself, I have experienced the pressures of the medical system on my decisions as a mother, as a student midwife. I appreciate their knowledge, experience, and balanced discussions which make me feel less alone in this mad world. On a sheer easy listening notes, Stu's healthy and often humorous cynicism and Bliss's upbeat positivity make for an entertaining and refreshing podcast. That's so funny. That's just what I said. I know. That's why I thought it was the perfect time to read that review. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, you're going to talk about it a little bit, but we've talked about this before. So if you're a newer listener, you know, I don't always agree with everything you say either. And we've we've tried pretty hard not to talk about politics anymore on the podcast because we're a birthing uh, podcast and not a politics podcast. But, you know, I think one of the things that we really want to be able to show and mentor is that you can have different opinions about things or different politics about things and still honor and love things about each other which I think is very true for you and I so you know focus on the good guys focus on what you love about people and try not to cancel them every time you have any kind of disagreement yeah try not to because uh I I've I've got a new badge of honor I've joined the ranks of Ben Shapiro and um Ann Coulter and Douglas Murray and other people who've been supposed to give a talk and then got canceled. Um, so I finally got canceled for a talk. I was supposed to do a talk tomorrow to the Doulas, oh, really? the Doulas Association of Alberta on Zoom. Uh-huh. And um, I got a meek little text from the, the, the leader who, who, who we, we get along great and she loves what we do. Yeah. Um, she said, I need to talk to you about something. Can I call you or can you call me? And so I called her. And we spoke, and what happened was, is that I was going to talk about home birth and breech birth and, you know, what we do, what I do, and that sort of thing. But one of their members, and again, one member, she said there was one member who sent her an email saying that she looked back through some of our podcasts and found podcast 193, where we, I was going after Harvard University for using the terms birthing person and chest feeding, I think. Yeah. And because of that, I'm anti-trans, right? So if I'm anti-trans, I can't speak to the Doulas Association of America. Now, first of all, before I even address that, why should one's position on an unrelated subject prevent them from speaking on another topic? When did, I mean, I know where, I shouldn't say when did we get to that point? We've been at that point for quite a while now, but what does that have to do with home birthing and with talking about breech birth and stuff like that? All right, so that's one. Second of all, disagreeing with terminology, calling somebody a pejorative like anti-trans is just dismissing them and dismissing and not even having a discussion or an argument. We talked about this. You call somebody racist, anti-Semitic, doesn't matter what you call them. You immediately 
dismissed them. So I'm going to call this one snowflake anti-free speech. So she's anti-free speech. That's a new a new term we're going to use now. Is she's anti-free speech? Okay, because it's an because my statement was non was non-inclusive. Mm-hmm. And so I got into discussion with uh, the woman from the Duelist Association about what is what is the definition of inclusiveness mean? And by definition, it means exclusion. Okay, and it's the same thing with equity. If you're forcing equity on people, then you're being unequal to some people because you're 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 not appreciating their, them for who they are. Um, you're you're rewarding people or promoting people based on their immutable characteristics and not on their merit. And um, so I know that you and I don't always agree on this topic, but I'm just saying that because. And by the way, you pushed back at me with that at that Harvard at that 193. And yeah. we got along fine. And we talked about it. We talked, but but this was so so triggering and offensive to this person. By the way, I, you know, Canada doesn't have a Bill of Rights, but even in our Bill of Rights, we don't have a thing that says you don't have the right to be offended. Um, that's not in the Bill of Rights. So yeah, yeah. So anyway, I just wanted to um, say that what what she did was she denied all the other members of the Duelist Association from hearing something that they wanted to hear because they invited me. Yes, that's true. That's what she accomplished. And, and, you know, I don't want to get into it too deeply today, but, you know, there's a certain amount of um, compassion that I have or understanding that I have of like, you know, not tolerating particular, if if you assume someone is coming from a hateful place, you know, not tolerating that, like someone who is racist or someone who is, you know, against gay people, I probably wouldn't be inviting them into my home and having dinner with them or, you know what I mean? Am I either, am I either of those things? No, that's what I'm saying. Someone who, who assumes that you have hateful intentions, if they call you anti-trans, if they assume that you're anti-trans, then, you know, they're trying to- The scary thing, Liz, the scary thing was, is that the the leadership of the Duelist Association buckled immediately. And they said, we buckled immediately because we're a new, we're a young organization. And we just know that, that if we don't do this, that they'll Twitter mob us to death and we will get, we'll get screwed. So again- Yeah, I know what you're saying. I do know, I do know- yeah, we, we have gone too far in the other direction in terms of, um, you know, not taking a stand for that as well. It's like the discussions are not um, happening amongst right. people. Right. Well, the other thing, too, is that this this particular snowflake is anti-feminist because she didn't like the fact that I said I didn't think that trans women should compete in, in women's sports. I said that in one of our, in that same podcast. Right, it's, it's a very controversial issue, which I don't really want to go too deeply into today because there, there's a lot of facets to it. It's a very controversial topic, which is why when you talked about it the first time, I made sure to say the other side because I think- But wouldn't important. it have been better to have me on and then it, there was going to be an hour Q&A after my talk. Wouldn't it have been better to have a conversation about it? Um, maybe. Not for her. Yeah. Right. I'm just yeah, saying. Maybe. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I've now I that, that's great. So now I'd say I I wear it as a badge of honor, by the way. That I've, okay. I've been canceled. I want to follow up one thing. Um, you know, we picked on a little bit on evidence-based birth uh, with the evidence-based BS podcast because they said something that was uh, you know, they, they had this doctor on who said things that pretty much everything 
is refutable and they didn't refute anything. But um, two things about them. She re recently interviewed uh, Jen Camel from Be Back Facts. Yeah. And it, and it was a good podcast. So I wanna give credit where credit is due. Oh, good. But in the email they sent out to us that are members of the evidence-based birth, which I still am, her, the subject was, quote, I dream of a world when birthing people receive accurate, honest information from any physician that they speak to, unquote. And I thought that, isn't that sweet, but you just had somebody on who was giving completely, not Jen Campbell, the woman, the Dr. DeWin, who gave all this information about the vaccine that was completely dishonest and, and not accurate, all right? Mm -hmm. Or at least certainly debatable. So um, yeah, I just wanted to say that they, they do still do good work, but sometimes they talking about the woke issue or the or the, the the overly sensitive issue and stuff like that. They've sometimes gone, she's gone too far a little bit on that. Yeah, but, you disagree with some of that. And that's the same thing we were just talking about. You don't have to throw out the whole thing. You can acknowledge where there is positive things and and call people out on the things that, you know, maybe you don't agree with. If that yeah, and I, I like when, when I read, when I saw that first podcast that bothered me, I didn't immediately ask for my money back and, and, and close my uh, account with them. Right. I, I'm going to continue to support them because I think most of the time they do, they, if they stay on obstetrical topics, I think they do a really good work. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. Um, interesting. I, 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 I saw a client in the office today, as a, I mean, not today, this last week, as a new client, and I got her medical records. And I just have to read this because this is um, ultrasound reports from Keck Medicine of USC. So that's, you know, a very reputable place here in uh -huh. Southern California. Mm -hmm. She had a 20-week scan. Um, this was on January 10th. She had a 20-week scan. And these, let's see, wait, I want to make sure I got the dates right. Oh, no. She had a 20-week scan on November 22nd of 2021. It was perfectly normal, all right? The recommendations are keep her, ED, keep her due date of April 19th, and then sonogram is recommended in seven weeks to assess fetal growth and for latent anomalies, okay? So my student asked me when I read this to her, she said, what, what latent anomalies, does that mean like a three-vessel cord will become a two-vessel cord? What is mm -hmm. what's the definition of latent anomalies? That something's gonna that something you found on the twenty week scan is suddenly gonna not be okay six weeks later, or is this just a reason to bring her back six weeks later? CYA. Right. Exactly. Yeah. That's actually what I wrote. Yeah. I wrote creating a medical record that is not only inappropriate but is also CYA. Yeah. Okay. So six weeks later or seven weeks later, she comes back on January tenth. If you don't know what that means, listeners, it's cover your ass. Just Every, making sure. Everybody knows what that is. <laughs> um, so now she's 27 weeks. Why did uh -huh. she need an ultrasound at 27 weeks when she had a normal 20-week ultrasound? But it gets right. better. All right? Completely normal ultrasound. Okay? Mm -hmm. So she, keep the due date. The, the recommendation is essentially almost word for word. Keep the due date of 419. Sonogram is recommended in six weeks to assess fetal growth and for latent anomalies. Mm-hmm. So right. they put it on everyone. So they Every. put it on everyone, mm -hmm. right? Okay. And then fetal kick counting is recommended starting at 28 weeks. Wow. Right. Normal pregnancy, no problems. Yeah. You know, she's over 35. So that could be, that could be the reason. All right. Yeah. Uh, 
All I'm saying is that this is typical of what I've seen from maternal fetal medicine groups pretty much everywhere, is that they always find a reason to bring you back. And every time they tell you to come back in six weeks, in the back of the woman's mind, what are they thinking? I wonder if something will be wrong. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Let's see. A couple of quick COVID updates real quick. uh, breaking from the New York Times, Pfizer expected to ask the FDA to authorize the vaccine for children under five. Mm-hmm. So here we live in a time where the vaccine really isn't working against Omicron, that children aren't at risk, that there's unknown potential hazards and just problems with the vaccine from a company, by the way, that is not releasing the data on the molecules in it or they wanted to, they, the FDA is defending them, trying to take 75 years to release the, the paperwork that they submitted to get the FDA to approve it in the first place. So there, you know, there's legal teams are suing um, the FDA to try to get this information faster than 500 pages a month when there's 500,000 pages. Take 70, it'll take 70 years to get the results back. They don't want, they don't want the results to come out until everyone who got the vaccine is dead. Okay. That's um, crazy. Right. So they're being sued about that. And and now they Pfizer, by the way, Pfizer's lawyers are now helping the FDA defend itself. So I thought the FDA was supposed to be a watchdog organization. Yeah, it is. Pfizer. Why are the Pfizer lawyers, why are they allowing the Pfizer lawyers to come in and help them? I mean, that, that's not how it's supposed to work. They're supposed to be, yeah. the FDA is supposed to protect us, but that's not the case. And now they want to go after your six-month-old kid. Okay, so great. Um, just out of Japan, ivermectin shows antiviral effect against Omicron. I'm just going to leave that, throw that out there. Uh, this one, um, Hershey's chocolate fires unvaccinated employees. Okay, so even though the OSHA mandate was overturned, certain companies are still forcing their employees to be vaccinated. And I'm just wondering what's happening to the chocolate companies of the world because M&M's, you know, went full um, diversity with their M&M characters last week or two weeks ago. And now Hershey's is firing their workers who aren't vaccinated, even though that's not, there's no law that says to do it. And we know that the vaccine (laughs) isn't really working or doing anything against Omicron anyway. So there you go. Oh, and then one last- still a major corporation. And one last thing, and, uh, Wednesday mornings, I get my UCLA update, my weekly UCLA update. So it's always annoying. That same guy, Dr. Yang, I think his name is, is, is there's a, another like news story. It's another propaganda piece written as a news story about how vaccine immunity is still better than natural immunity. When I thought that's been blown out of the water now, even the, even the CDC has said that natural immunity is better. So mm-hmm. yeah, but they're still lying. Okay. Okay. I can't hand. I can't. I can't abide. I. J- I just can't. <laughs> no. Right. I, I'm offended. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, enough ranting. Here's a letter from Ellie in Australia. Okay. I'm yeah. thirty. I'm thirty-seven weeks pregnant, and hubby and I are pretty much locked inside our house because at my hospital. When I go into labor, they test us on entry 
And if either of us are COVID positive, he isn't allowed in and I have to birth alone. I wish I booked a home birth, but it's my first and I was a bit nervous. That's Too bad. Yeah, we've tried really hard to let people know that 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 birth is normal. She's how many weeks? 37. Yeah, my client just switched into my care at 37 weeks. So it can be done, ladies. Don't, don't, uh, at any point, if you feel like um, it's not working, it doesn't feel good, you can always switch. She says, I had to start my maternity leave four weeks early, unpaid because my work mandated the vaccine. My husband had to have the vaccine. He's a teacher and he's been there 16 years or he would have lost his job. I can't return to my job without the vaccine and hubby wouldn't be allowed to birth with me without vaccine, even if he's not positive. Was America ever not letting birth partners in during the peak of the pandemic? Yes. Were they not, they weren't letting husbands in? That's right. Yes. Yeah, they were. Yes. Yeah. Well, they weren't. Yeah. It's just that, you know, our tyranny didn't last quite as long as yours and our stupidity. Well, that's still going on everywhere. So. (laughs) Um, it's true yeah i hope you have a great birth i really do we do and by the way once the baby's born get the hell out of the hospital all right four to six hours tell me you want to go home why would you why would you stay there the hospital's a a festering sty (laughs) (laughs) how do you really feel about it Stu? (laughs) you know it's sick people are there Mercer's climbing on the walls and you've got mycoplasma floating in the air and you got, you know, you got sick people. Why would you want to? Okay. It's true. Um, By the way, I will say that if people really want to hear some good information about the, the, um, uh, the vaccine, the mandate, stuff like that. um, I know that nobody has the time to listen for five hours to Ron Johnson's Senator Johnson's um, hearing that took place last week. Um, this will be about three weeks ago by the time this comes out, but the high wire episode, um, that came out, uh, it's called, hang on, I'll just give you the name of the the episode, um, making history. It's called, um, he interviews and he plays clips, a lot of clips from the hearing. It's something you should listen to. Even if you think the vaccine is the greatest thing since sliced bread, you should still listen to it and hear what the other side is saying. Because if you're in that bubble where you only listen to CNN and watch Fauci, you, you, you don't know anything else and you don't, you think that things that I'm saying are crazy, but they're not crazy. And there's a lot of evidence and some of the most world-renowned scientists are saying certain things. So the masking, the lockdowns, the, the vaccinating of children is a, is a crime against humanity, the vaccinating of children for this, yeah. for this particular, well, for a lot of vaccines, but particularly for this one. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, Ellie. So you know what time it is, Bliss? It's time to talk about boobies. Yeah, it's time to talk about one of our good sponsors, Bamboobies, who we love dearly. One, we love them because they sponsor us. <laughs> but two, yes. because they have great organic products. Right. And we're not going to have any sponsors that we can't stand behind what they do. So we love them for that. Yeah, I wish we had like a beer sponsor. <laughs> I don't drink beer, but you do. <laughs> no, I know. No, because I, I mean, Bamboobies is great stuff but it's not products for Dr. Stu, put it that way. It's products yeah. for products for our listeners, but that's- Products for the bump, breastfeeding and beyond, they like to say. So yeah, it's, you know, they, they, they focus really on comfort for moms, and both physically and emotionally. 
and they have great products. I mean, we've, we've talked in the past about their nursing pads and nursing bra, and you can mention a little bit about that in a second, but we also talk about um, some of their organic products, including their organic nipple balm, which is 100% organic. It's non-toxic. You don't have to wipe it off before you have breastfeed the baby. Um, it makes breastfeeding more comfortable for the mom. And it's got natural ingredients, including extra virgin olive oil, beeswax, shea butter. You know, I love stuff with shea butter in it too. It's actually really good for you. Yeah. Even as a guy, I do. <laughs> and, uh, there's no lanolin or, and it's made in the USA. So tell us a little bit about the, the nursing stuff. Well, they have um, the nursing pads that I've talked to you about that I really love. They're the number one sustainable nursing pad in a wonderful heart shape made with bamboo renewable um, as a renewable source. And the reason they do that heart shape is so that you, it's not so visible. Those of you who have worn um, breast pads, nursing pads, you know that <laughs> you can see them through your clothes and it's, it's not cute. So that's the reason for the heart shape design and it works so well. And then they've got a really great, um, also made with bamboo um, stylish racerback nursing bra that can be used in your wardrobe that has a little clasp and you can um, breastfeed wherever you're at. So check them out. They're great. They're great for the environment. They're great for mamas and um, tell them about the discount codes too. Yeah. They go, if you go to bamboobies.com and you put in the code instincts, that's I-N-S-T-I-N-C-T-S, you get 25% uh, off your purchase. And so we would hope that you'll support them. Um, we are going to encourage them to come out with a organic beer. And uh, <laughs> then I'll be really encouraging you to uh, support them. No, <laughs> support them because they support us and they make the, the um, possibility of our podcast um, go. And making great products. So thanks, Bamboovies. Thanks, Bamboovies. All right, so this one's from Jeannie in Phoenix. It's really terrible. I can't tell you how much I appreciate your podcast. <laughs> I love that. I don't think she's talking about us being terrible. But I, I, I couldn't agree with you more on everything. It's so wrong what is happening right now. The masking of children really frustrates me to the core. I'm a speech language pathologist. And yeah. our national association has yet to make a statement about how this is impacting our children. Well, you're, all national associations pretty much are cowards. They're all cowards. They all back down immediately. Okay. Or they believe what they're saying or they believe the, the propaganda, but they, they, there's no, there's no courage anymore in almost any national organization or they're too financially invested um, to speak out. She says it's disgusting and so wrong. Really all of this madness starts at birth. So many women don't understand how wrong some of the things that are happening in maternal health care. What we're doing is incredible and we need more doctors and midwives like you. I've started to become disgusted in OBs. Well, you should be, actually. But your podcast, I mean, you should be. Most OBs are recommending this vaccine to pregnant women, to women of reproductive age, and to breastfeeding women. And if you listen and take the time to understand how the vaccine works and what the, nano, the, the, the nanolipid particles go around your body and into your brain and into your ovary and, um, and and by the way, into your fetus's ovary. And then they want to give it down to, you know, one years old, two years old, three years. Those ovaries will be, in, be tagged by this vaccine. And we don't know what will happen 30 years later when they want to have a kid. 
We yeah. have no idea, but let's yeah. give it to them anyway, because for a disease that isn't going to affect them at all, especially now with Omicron. Um, gives me hope that there are fantastic out doctors and midwives out there who still trust women's bodies. Thanks, Jeannie. Yay. Okay. Hey, I got a I got a private message on Instagram today from a woman named Amanda. And she said that she was listening to our um the podcast that just came out today that we did about um preeclampsia and hypertension. And she said, I'm listening right now, and I just wanted to say a firm thank you for all your wisdom. As someone who had borderline preeclampsia OB diagnosed last time and was told the solution was an induction with literally none of these suggestions or information, I'm so thankful that I have found you guys. So I love getting that. Yeah, I know that we're, that we're, making, we're making a difference. I mean, whether it's one person who writes us in a week or it's a couple hundred people that write I know that we're making a difference. And for us, first of all, for me, I've always said that this is really cathartic for me to have this and to be able to say these things publicly and to get praised or crucified. Canceled. <laughs> yeah, or canceled, <laughs> right. It doesn't matter because I believe that what I'm saying is truth and I will, I will debate anybody. Um, I will not just call somebody a name and um, dismiss them that way because that's a coward's way out and that's that's evidence that you don't have an argument when you when you just call somebody a name so yeah um here's another here's a letter about um nuchal cords and meconium real quick okay uh this is from Kristen. i don't know where Kristen's from though um i enjoy your podcast and i've learned so much from you and bliss i started listening when i was 37 weeks pregnant with my second child who was breech I ended up having a successful external cephalic version with Dr. David Hayes, uh, our friend who's part of Breach Without Borders, mm -hmm. and went on to have a precipitous home birth with my midwife. But with what I've learned from you, I will be prepared for a vaginal breach birth if my next baby is breached. Thank you for all you do to give women's choices. I have a couple general questions about birth, mostly brought on by comments from a young couple I know whose first child was born today. This is from January 22nd. Um, he was born in the hospital and I don't know the details, but in the email they said there were, a, there were quote, a few difficulties. The cord was wrapped around his neck and he swallowed meconium, unquote. He checked out fine and is doing well, but evidently their OB put some fear into them about these things as he was born. I'm not sure if they went through with it or not, but she was scheduled for induction yesterday, a whole two days after estimated due date. So that may have been a factor there. So she might've been induced as well. Um, my questions are, are nuchal cords often serious? No. <laughs> Almost never. I was under the impression that they are relatively common and usually don't cause harm to the baby unless very tight. But I don't know a lot about them, so I'd love to hear your thoughts on the subject. Okay. So Liz's thoughts were no, it's very rare. And by the way, a tight nuchal cord doesn't really affect the baby in the way you think it does. It's not going to cause the baby to choke. All right, because babies aren't using their tracheas to breathe. So they're not breathing right. inside. They can't really choke. But a cord can get compressed if it's tight or it can be tight around the body or it could be short or it could have poor Wharton's jelly or whatever. And that's what you hear in labor. You'll start to hear that when the cord gets compressed, the baby has a vagal response. The heart rate drops. And that's, that's normal mammalian reflex to do that. And it's a sign that, that that's a problem. Now, 
depends when it happens in labor and it depends how deep they go and how fast they recover and what the baseline heart rate is. But if those things are going back to normal pretty quickly, it's not a sign that you have to do anything to intervene. You just got to keep an eye on it, right? Yeah, right. Change positions is a good idea, you know, change positions. But um, yeah, there's not much else, but just be aware. Is swallowing meconium actually dangerous? I'll answer that unless you want to answer okay. that. No, go ahead. Swallowing meconium is not dangerous. All right. Normal. Yeah. And even breathing it, taking it into your lungs, the baby's lungs, is not usually dangerous. It's the that's not the same thing as meconium aspiration syndrome. I think I actually maybe said that earlier today already. Meconium mm -hmm. aspiration syndrome is a syndrome where the baby experiences a hypoxic event sort of inside and, and gasps and something weird happens. Because meconium is common, we see it all the time. And most babies, and this baby didn't obviously have a problem with the meconium. Maybe they had to suction the baby, which maybe they, you know, we're not supposed to, or at least it's NRP says, leave them alone if they're doing fine, let them work it out. Yeah, not anymore, it's not, it's not recommended. Right, so let the baby work it out itself. Uh, mm -hmm. On those rare cases where the baby is floppy and, and you know, acidotic and hypoxic, that's a different story. Um, right. So the problem is, of course, the word meconium is a trigger for many people in the medical uh, birthing world because they've been misinformed mm -hmm. when they were trained. Um, so sometimes it can be serious. It really depends on the viscosity of the meconium. So if the, if it's, um, you know, if the waters look kind of uh, speckled or a little bit yellow, that's really different than if, if the meconium is super thick, like pea soup, because when you're pushing, when the baby's pushing that fluid through their lungs after they deliver, um, if it's really thick, it's harder for them to be able to do it. So those babies are going to tend to have more issues, but you know, we want to watch a baby where meconium is present the same as we would any other baby, like you were talking about in your birth story earlier. Um, you know, you That's just awesome. want to watch for, for breathing, um, for breathing issues, which we would be doing anyways. So, yeah. Okay. 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 So should we talk a little bit about hyperemesis gravidarum? Yeah, but you know what? I forgot to tell you something when I checked in. So I want to tell you this really fast and then we're going to get into it. So I was at a um, RV, no, I was at a, a state park. And as I was leaving, I went to like, you know, empty my tanks and stuff. This really friendly guy was standing behind me and let, you know, helped me park. We started to get to talking and I told him I was a midwife and he goes, so, you know, Ina Mae Gaskin. And I was like, well, I, I know her and we're not like close friends or anything. Um, and he ended up, his name was Peter Hoyt. I wrote it down because I was like, I'm going to talk, talk about you on the podcast. He was in the caravan with Ina Mae Gaskin. He was a founding member of the farm and he did the illustrations in um, spiritual midwifery. Oh my God, did, you don't have the books with you right now, right? Because they're not in hope, right? Actually, I think I do have spiritual midwifery in here. You and I should have had him sign it. it. I yes. know I oh didn't, <laughs> but isn't that funny? What a small world. I was so, I think we were both so excited that we like knew this very odd thing and um, it was fun. So anyway, it is shout a small out to world, Peter. but the fact that you guys are both in a campground. Yeah. Cause you're both of that same ilk makes the small yeah. world. I mean, makes it, I mean, makes 
this possibility a little more likely that you would have run into somebody like that. I guess but, so. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> if you were in the corporate world someplace, you never would have run into yeah. this guy. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> Anyways, that was kind of a fun fact. That's a great okay. story. That's a great story. The, uh, you know, serendipitous stories like that, you know, people you run into and uh, like a couple of times in the last couple of weeks, I've run into people. I think I told you about the couple that I met at the ranch who, who, um, uh, I, I, uh, I, for, now I, I even forgot the story now, but somehow they knew of me because, oh, they're going to come and see me. They're going to come in the office and see me. Uh -huh. And the odds of me meeting them up at the ranch, they don't have a horse there anymore. They were just their daughters taking lessons. The odds of them meeting me and then us stopping to talk, because rarely do I stop to talk to anybody. I just do my stuff and, and, and get out unless there's some new people or, or somebody comes up to me. Um, and then she was going to see me the following week. Oh, and then I run into funny. people who find out who I am. They'll say, oh, you know, you delivered my sister or you know, something like that. So it, it's fun. It, it, we, have, we do have a great job. It's just taxing sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Right. Right. Make, you, make you sick to your stomach. It, oh, <laughs> is that a segue? <laughs> that's my subtle, that's my subtle segue. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was a decent segue, except that I, I was wondering if you think it makes me sick to my stomach. <laughs> no, it doesn't. It doesn't. Yeah, births like births like yesterday's birth were were just so reaffirming. Yeah, salve to the soul. Okay, okay so what do you want to so, talk about? Well, um, we wanted to talk about hyperemesis, and um, before we jump all the way into that, I think it's good to just talk about that nausea is something that is very common um, in pregnancy. Um, but from a midwifery perspective, um, oftentimes what it has to do with is low blood sugar and not enough protein. So I find that, um, this is one of those things that is not really talked about in, um, the obstetrical model. And so a lot of women, it's kind of like, oh yeah, that's normal. You know, and um, I think the recommendations a lot of times are things like make sure that you eat saltine crackers and um, people end, end up having a lot of carb loading, um, you know, crackers, bagels, things like that, that they feel like normally would settle their stomach. And it's exactly the opposite of what you want to be doing because you're putting in empty calories into your body. And what you want to be doing is making sure that you're getting a lot of protein. So I have women who will come in and, you know, they um, are towards the end of their first trimester, or maybe they're having nausea even into their second trimester. And um, when you get them eating protein from the beginning, you want to have this constant kind of um, feed of protein throughout the day. If you start at what I tell them is have your partner make you a protein smoothie before your feet even hit the floor and just sip on that throughout the day. These are for the women who are having a really hard time. Maybe they're not able to, they've lost some weight. They're not able to keep things down. They're vomiting. Um, this really can make a difference just to have um, sips of protein throughout the day, whether it's a smoothie or there's an Odwalla drink that has protein in it that you can buy, um, that can be really helpful. Obviously, for most women, I don't want them just having smoothies and drinks, but for these women who are really sensitive, sometimes it can be the thing that can um, help them feel better. Um, did you want to say anything? I have a couple other recommendations. Yeah, before we get to finish, I've got a whole bunch of 
stuff too on recommendations, but I wanted to sort of get more about the, the definitions and stuff. So can I do that? Yeah, sure. Okay. okay. Because nausea and pregnancy is a very good term, Bliss, the way you said that, because most nausea and pregnancy, people will call it hyperemesis or hyperemesis gravity. That's not what it is. Right, which is what I wanted to make sure and, and define for people because I feel like it also, because people don't have recommendations in the obstetrical model, they'll just start to give them you know, a, uh, a prescription. And so it's good for women to know that before you go to that, um, there are other things that you can do. Yeah, I mean, nausea in pregnancy is very common. About 90% of women will experience some nausea during their pregnancy. Yeah. You know, it, it, you can be called morning sickness, but some people it's all day sickness or yeah. in the middle of the night sickness. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and I think why morning sickness is so common is because you had so much time in the middle of the night where you, you haven't been eating. Correct. So you, you wake up with this low blood sugar and then it just compounds the issue as you go on throughout the day. Yeah, only only one to two percent of women who are pregnant will experience true hyperemesis gravidarum. Yeah, so hyperemesis gravidarum is actually in, it's called uh, intractable vomiting in pregnancy, which mm -hmm. leads to weight loss, volume depletion, resulting in ketonuria, and and ketonemia, which is ketones in your urine, ketones in your blood from breaking mm -hmm. down fat because yeah. your body's your body's starving essentially. Um, the etiology yeah, of hyperemesis. I was going to say the baby's going to get what it needs and you're going to get depleted. Your system is going to get depleted. So, yeah. The etiology of hyperemesis is largely unknown. Um, they believe there's a, there's a lot of people who looked at it. They believe it's increased placental mass might have something to do with it because you see it sometimes higher in women who have molar pregnancies or twin pregnancies or multiple gestations. Mm -hmm. Um, Women who experience nausea and vomiting outside of pregnancy due to consumption of estrogen-containing meds, like people who take birth control pills who have a hard time with them, people who have emotion sickness, have a history of migraines, uh, they're more likely to have nausea and vomiting in pregnancy as well, because pregnancy is a high estrogen, higher progesterone state. Now, here's the interesting thing. They say protective factors include the use of multivitamins and cigarette smoking before six weeks of gestational age. <laughs> Say that again, that helps? Yes. Now, oh. um, if you take vitamins before six weeks, mm -hmm. uh, usually women don't know they're pregnant. They find out they're pregnant, they start vitamins, that's after six weeks. Vitamins, as you and I both tell all our clients, often uh, exacerbates the nausea. So we just tell them to stop taking it, just take folate, you know, methylated folate and that sort of thing. But cigarette smoking also helps alleviate um, nausea. Now, I'm not sure why it's in this article. This is an article from the NIH, and, I, and I'm not sure why it's in this article, but clearly uh, maybe there was less hyperemesis gravidarum in the age of smoking than there is now. Or, or people who smoked you know, before they got realized they were pregnant. Yeah, I just said, I mean, smoking is something that we, it's like pregnancy smoking, it's like, polar, <laughs> it's like polar opposites. We All hope right. so, yes. Mm -hmm. um, some studies show a correlation between higher HCG concentrations and hyperemesis. And higher HCG is also seen in women with molar pregnancies and twins. So yes. that kind of goes along with placental mass, same sort of thing. Estradiol levels increase early in pregnancy and decrease later, mirroring the typical course of nausea and vomiting. So some people think it might be estrogen related. And that's also 
go, correlates with the idea that some people don't do well when they take the birth control pill. So also some people have um, those symptoms around their cycle. They're, they're very nauseous and don't feel well. Yeah. It's just. Um, and there's also women with family members who've had hyperemesis are slightly increased risk. Uh, not that you can do anything about that. And then there's two genes that they've uh, been potentially linked. I won't get into that, but you know, maybe at some point they might find it again. This is all for, research purposes. This is not for day-to-day -day use. It's not for clinicians to how we're going to address our clients, but they're looking at it. But it's one of those things like what starts labor that nobody really has the absolute answer for yet. And part of me believes it's a good thing because if we figure out what starts labor, uh, we're going to start to tinker with that. And if we figure out what start hyperemia, we're going to start to tinker with that. And pharmaceutical companies will come out with some sort of gene therapy or whatever. And, and then we'll start to tinker with that. And then where's it all going to end? So, mm -hmm. okay, mm -hmm. uh, it's a clinical diagnosis. The criteria for diagnosis include vomiting, which causes significant dehydration, as we said, weight loss, and without any other pathologic cause for the vomiting. So you have to rule out other things like pyelonephritis, uh, multiple gestations, uh, molar pregnancies, these sorts of things. You have to rule these things out before you just consider that especially if it comes on vehemently and early. Evaluation should include checking your urine for ketones and specific gravity. Specific gravity is something we probably never talked about on the podcast before, but it's, it's you can tell how concentrated the urine is. Dehydration. Drinking, what, what? Dehydration. Yeah, somebody who's drinking a lot of water is gonna have a specific gravity of 1.000, 1.005. And somebody who's really dehydrated is gonna be 1.030. Uh, or higher or worse if it goes your sticks don't go that high the dipstick things that we use but if it's that high there's there's some issue going on there okay yeah an elevated hemoglobin on the routine prenatal panel may it may imply hemoconcentration so if you get somebody who's hematic comes back at 15 i mean hemoglobin at 15 that's sort of weird um significant dehydration may result in acute kidney injury you could have ser elevated serum creatinine or buns your electrolytes could be screwed up and uh, you want to check the thyroid because hyperthyroidism can sometimes uh, mimic hyperemesis or cause uh, intractable vomiting. And you also want to check, you know, your uh, liver functions because of, you could have a liver problem that can also do that as well. Fatty liver or pregnancy, um, other liver things, which I'm not qualified to get into. Um, so his initial, initial treatment should begin with, non-pharmacologic interventions. So yeah. I appreciate the NIH saying that actually, such as switching the pre patient's prenatal vitamins to just folic acid supplementation only, using ginger supplement. What? Folate. Oh yeah, methylate, they, they say folic acid, right. Mm. Yeah, folate. <laughs> it's also the folate, it's also the folate folic acid bell too. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> There's a great doctor. His name is Dr. David Lynch. He is one of the people who I think he is the the, the person who's most renowned for his information on um, MTHFR. Um, but he's also great to follow. Um, and he has a line of supplements. It's called Seeking Health are his supplements. And he has a supplement that is a prenatal vitamin with protein powder. 
So for women who can't swallow the pill or having a hard time with that, um, this is a great thing to do because they can get the prenatal vitamins in and also boost their protein like I was talking about. So um, there's a recommendation for you. Seekinghealth.com? Um, I don't know if it's seekinghealth.com. You can find David Lynch on, uh, on um, Instagram and then um, Seeking Health is the brand of his line. Yeah, I think David Lynch also directed Eraserhead, but I'm not, I'm not <laughs> yeah. exactly sure that's the same David Lynch. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> okay. Um, let's see. You can use acupressure wristbands. Or acupuncture. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. Or, um, and any first line pharmacotherapy should include vitamin B6 and doxylamine. I had a question from a listener about diclegis. You know what diclegis is? Yes. Yes. It's a combination of doxylamine and pyridoxine. And um, did she ask, is it safe in pregnancy? And I wanted to just reiterate that, that there's really good evidence on diclegis that it is safe and should be something that if you are really one of that one or 2% that are suffering badly and can't handle it with usual conventional or homeopathic remedies, things like that, that it is an option for you. And I wanted to, I did a search and I, I found an article from the New England Journal from 2014 about the whole process of diclegis' approval by the FDA. And it's a very, very interesting. So I wanted, to, I wanted to get serious for a moment and just read this. So in 1983, the combination drug Bendictine, consisting of 10 milligrams of doxylamine succinate and 10 milligrams of pyridoxine hydrochloride, which is vitamin B6, by the way. Um, and you- what? And Unisom, right? Yeah, and Unisom is doxylamine, right? That's correct. Mm-hmm was voluntarily withdrawn from the US market by the manufacturer. For the next 30 years, there were no medications that had been approved by the Food and Drug Administration for the treatment of nausea and vomiting of pregnancy. In 2014, the FDA approved Diclegis, a product with the same combination of doxylamine and pyridoxine that had been marketed as Bendictine. The Bendictine experience serves as an informative case study of how decisions that are not science-based may affect the marketing and availability of a drug product um, why did Bendictine get taken off the market? It got sued out of existence. And here's what happened. In the historical context of two notorious teratogens, thalidomide and diethylstilbestrol, initial reports questioning the safety of Bendictine ignited public fears. In the late 60s through the 70s, letters and to the editors of medical journals began to report an association between Bendictine use and birth defects. The mainstream media reported stories as well, and law firms launched publicity campaigns claiming that Bendictine was a teratogen. In January of 1980, the first major lawsuit, McDessey versus Merrill National Laboratories, was heard in Florida. And by the time the product was withdrawn in 1983, there were more than 300 pending lawsuits attributing various birth defects to the use of Bendictine. However, Courtroom testimony claiming that Bendictine was a human teratogen was markedly devoid of evidence. (laughs) Merrill Dow indicated that his decision to withdraw Bendictine was based not on safety concerns, but on financial concerns. In September in 1980, the FDA Fertility and Maternal Health Drug Advisory Committee um, found no association of Bendictine with increased risk of birth defects. The committee unanimously concluded that overall the, de- the data did not show an association between Bendictine and birth defects. 
Two independent meta-analysis of Bendictine and congenital birth defects concluded that Bendictine is not a human teratogen. In addition, data maintained by the Birth Defect Monitoring Program for the Center for Disease Control and Prevention did not show an association between birth defects and Bendictine use. These data show that during the period from 1985 through 1987, which was after the product had been withdrawn, the incidence of birth defects was the same as that seen during the peak period of 78 through 1980 of Bendictine use. Aside from that fact, that a considerable quantity of data, both direct and indirect, has failed to produce evidence of Bendictine's associated teratogenicity, the withdrawal of Bendictine may actually have had adverse effects on pregnant women. What do they mean by that? They said the number of hospitalizations in the United States for nausea and vomiting of pregnancy women increased from 7 per 100,000 live births from 74 to 80 to, to 16 per 1,000 live births during the 81 to 87 period after Bendictine was removed. So we can thank the trial lawyers for that. Um, the decades-long history of, of doxylamine pyridoxine emphasizes the importance of making clinical decisions on the basis of scientific evidence. Isn't that refreshing to hear that in the New England Journal of Medicine? What happened to them since 2014? The FDA's approval of Diclegis was based on efficacy and safety data from randomized placebo-controlled clinical trials. Placebo-controlled, wow. How about that? And also took into account the extensive data described above showing that combined treatment with doxylamine, succinate, and pyridoxine hydroplard is not teratogenic. The Diclegis story reminds us that reliance on evidence-based practices with the use of multiple streams of data is the most appropriate way to evaluate a drug for safety. What do you think of that? Um, In context of today's research, I put that in quotes on the mRNA vaccines. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah. Okay. I just want people to know because I've got I've had more than one person ask me about the use of of Diclegis or Unisom and B6, and I want them to know that the data is. So, and when I was in 83, when they took it off the market, I was a resident and I remember using it, using it. And then all of a sudden it was gone and we had nothing and we had more people being hospitalized. And I, I mean, I remember this firsthand and I was angry back then. And this was before I was Dr. Stu. This was when I was still a resident, but I saw what misinformation and tyranny and stuff like that can do to a good product when there's money to be made. Kind of like silicone breast implants, same sort of thing. Sued Dow Corning out of existence, essentially, only to find out years later that there was there's really no problem with silicone breast implants. It doesn't cause connective tissue disease. Yeah, you're shaking your head. Yeah. But the data doesn't show it. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, but you know, we've talked about how things can be skewed and depends on where it's coming from. Um, yeah, but when, but, but I, I would just say that when when I see trial lawyers making a lot of money off of something. Mm -hmm. I'm always suspicious that that it's there's something fishy there. Well, it's always good to do your research. Um, I definitely would uh, opt for increasing your protein um, before taking any kind of medication. And um, uh, you can just combine B6 and Unisom usually for good results um, if you decide you need to take something. Um. And then there's all kinds of, uh, before I go on to pharma, more pharmacological things, there's all kinds of things um, that are homeopathic. That yeah, let's just go back and forth and we'll make recommendations. 
Okay. What do you mean go back and forth? You go first? <laughs> just, <laughs> no, I'm just saying you say some, I'll say some. Go okay. Um, okay. Well, one's, one's called sepia. And it's for intermittent, intermittent nausea with an empty feeling in the stomach. Um, and it's indicated for women who are feeling irritable, sad, worn out, indifferent to her family. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> but uh, it's called sepia. Okay, you want to do one? No, you're doing actual homeopathy. So you do your list of homeopathy. Okay, yeah, I am. I'm, I'm, I got this from either you or Beth. I can't remember who sent me this list. Probably Beth. Yeah. Okay. Pulsatilla. Uh, this help, remedy can be helpful if nausea is worse in the afternoon and evening. Here's one that's got a terrible name. It's called Nux Vomica. Mm -hmm. uh, nausea, especially in the morning after eating. People may respond to that remedy. Uh, Colchicum. Have you heard of these things, Puss? Uh, yes, all of them until you said the one that you said now, unless you're mispronouncing it. Yeah. Uh, C-O-L-C-H-I-C-U-M. Horrible nausea that is worse from the sight and smell of food. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, Symphora carpus is another commonly prescribed remedy for morning sickness. When the nausea is very strong, made worse by food or motion. Creosotum, when this remedy is indicated, the woman may salivate so much she is constantly swallows it. Oh, when you're, when you're over salivating. Yeah. Uh, lact, lacticum acidum. This remedy is indicated for classic morning sickness. Nausea work, uh, worse immediately on waking in the morning. Okay, I'll, that's all the uh, homeopathic remedies that I have. I have a whole bunch of other stuff, but why don't you say- So what's stuff. great about homeopathy for those that don't use it often, um, homeopathy remedies, as you noticed when um, Dr. Stu was talking about the specifics um, is to find the remedy that's closest to your symptoms. And there's no side effects with um, homeopathy. It either works or it doesn't. So it's a great thing to try. And if it works for you, if it's the right remedy for you, um, it can it can work magic. But there's not it's not like a, a pharmaceutical or even sometimes herbology um, that, you know, there are side effects with, with homeopathy that really isn't. So th they're great to give a shot to. So you talked about acupuncture um, and then we talked about low blood sugar. So eating something before you go to bed, that's high in protein and having something next to the bed that when you get up to pee, you can snack on. So yogurt, cheese, Dr. Stu often talks about peanut butter um, a bite of a protein bar, things like that can really make a difference. Um, red raspberry leaf tea is great uh, all the time during your pregnancy. Some people think it starts labor, but that's not true. It's actually a uterine tonifier. So it's just for the health of your uterus, um, but can also sometimes help with um, nausea. Um, sparkling water with some lemon, step outside into the fresh air. Um, we talked about B6. You can take that before bed and you can also take um, ginger powder upon waking. So four or more gelatin caps with ginger powder. When you wake up, ginger tea is also really good. And um, there's a chewable papaya enzyme um, that I love. Don't do Tums. It's not really that great for your placenta. You'll often see calcification um, from doing Tums. So uh, the chewable papaya enzymes can be a really great replacement for that. And they taste good and you can have as many as you want. Um, and then keton, uh, isotonic liquid mineral, sometimes you're mineral deficient. So that's another one that you can look up and we used to sell it at the Eco Boutique. Um, that's a great one for that as well.
Okay, I've got a few, a few others. Few, yeah, a few others. Um, uh, it says drink a small cup of something warm or too hot before eating. So mm -hmm. before you take food in, maybe have some tea before you eat your or your your small meals. Um, mm -hmm. Avoid sudden movements. Yeah. Uh, maybe have a protein snack before bed. Maybe you said that. I, I can't remember. I did. Okay. Yeah. Uh, get some fresh air. Yeah. So if you're feeling in bed, like you can't get out of bed, at least go lay outside. <laughs> yeah. Get some air. Don't eat, don't eat large meals, obviously. Yeah, small um, meals. If you're going to take your prenatal vitamin, take it before you go to bed, not in the morning. But I would recommend that you hold off if you're, if you're having a lot of nausea. Uh, and don't take your prenatal vitamin until the nausea is better, or at least get out of the first trimester. Because as Bliss said earlier, the prenatal vitamin is really not for your baby. The prenatal vitamin is for, to replenish for you because your baby's going to take from your body, your muscle, your bone, whatever it needs, all right? Um, try to get out and walk, all right? And then maybe drink, sip lemon water. You said other things too, a protein, protein uh, shake, but also... Uh, lemon water um, during the day. Mm -hmm. And then, um, yeah, that's it. Great. Right. Okay. So we said ginger. I think they, they, they even said it orally. You can take it 250 milligrams four times a day. But you mentioned ginger powder and stuff like that too. So, mm -hmm. right. Okay. A um, couple other things. Um, let's see. Uh, if you start getting nauseous or throwing up after the first trimester, but it wasn't in the first trimester, that's something you should talk, bring up to your practitioner because that's not the usual thing. There, there could be something else going on at that point. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, if you're not, if you, if you're not, if your nausea goes away and then you start getting it again at 16 weeks or 18 weeks or something, make sure you let your doctor know that or your midwife know that. Okay. Um, symptoms usually begin to, uh, uh, prior to nine weeks gestation, and the majority of cases are resolved by 20 weeks. About 3% will continue to have vomiting into the third trimester. Um, it's also reassuring to know that hyperemesis does not appear to become more likely with each pregnancy, and that after one pregnancy, the following pregnancy may be completely normal. Okay? Mm -hmm. um, complications. Uh, electrolyte uh, abnormalities such as low, low potassium, so it's very important that if you're really having intractable vomiting that you need to be seen because that's where IVs and IV therapy and even home IV therapy or central line or, or, or TPN, which is stands for total parenteral nutrition might be some people. And I've had maybe, I've had one woman I've had, I think I've had her for three pregnancies and she's had a central line for all three pregnancies. Wow. We set up a home nurse comes, I think once a day and runs in mm -hmm. a liter of fluid or two liters of fluid. And she makes it through her pregnancy. And in the second and third pregnancy, we, you know, she just wanted it done prophylactically. She didn't, she want to wait till she got deathly ill like she did last yeah. time. So, yeah. So that's what she did. Yeah. Um, reassuring that studies have not shown an association between hyperemesis and perinatal or neonatal mortality. And the frequency of congenital anomalies does not appear to increase in patients with hyperemesis. Um, we won't get into inpatient management. That's not something we need to think. Uh, we need to deal with. Um, yeah, we talked about if you, things seem weird, then you should, then you should, if it's not what you as a practitioner typically see with hyper, with nausea in pregnancy or hyperemesis, um, that may be a time to get a consult. 
because something else, as I said, something else could be going on. And then there's, there's other pharmacological treatment, which of course, besides, um, you can just take B6 and Unisom, which you can buy yeah. over the counter, or you can get a prescription for something called Diclegis, which is actually exactly the same as B6 and Unisom. Um, and I think that little segment that we're gonna insert, we talked about it. So also things like there are certain antihistamines that work like Dramamine and Benadryl, Compazine, Phenergan, Reglan, and Zofran are all prescription medications. But again, there's so many things that Bliss said that we can do that you can try first. The medical model generally goes right to, oh, I'm gonna write your prescription for Zofran. Right. Put it on your tongue, blah, blah, blah. Now, is there a downside to Zofran? You know, probably not, probably not. But it's a pharmaceutical product. Why would you take it unless you absolutely need it? Yeah. Right? I have a funny, I mean, as an aside, I have a Zofran story, which has nothing really to do with what, where we're headed with this, but I want to tell it because it, it's an insurance story. So when I was still working in, in Camarillo at the woman's place, so this had to be 15, 16, 17 years ago, um, I had a woman who was having very bad nausea pregnancy, and she knew that in a previous pregnancy that Zofran worked for her. Mm-hmm. So I, call, I, I wrote her a prescription for Zofran, and Blue Cross would not fill it. They would not pay for it. So I, being me, I called the uh, Blue Cross physician who's a screening physician. Basically, they're, I, I don't mean this with complete disrespect, mostly with disrespect, but most of them are just a shill for the insurance company to try to block them from having to pay for stuff. Um, and most of them are not like OBs. You'll get, a, you'll get a GP or an internist that's the screener and he doesn't know anything about OB. So you're explaining to him on the phone her history and that, and and he denied it. And I said, so you, he said, well, she hasn't been, she asked me, has she been to the emergency room yet? Mm-hmm. And I said, no, I'm trying to keep her out of the emergency room. Wouldn't that be the smart thing? Well, we can't, you know, our, our algorithm says we can't prescribe or pay for this drug unless she's been hospitalized, you know, and had to have IV therapy. All right. So in other words, they want the patient to get really sick first before they'll, the algorithm says, so there's no human, there's no human on the other side of the phone. I mean, he's, yeah. a, he's a human, but he can't, he can't be independent. He can't make an independent decision. Why am I wasting my breath talking to him? So eventually the woman just went and paid for it herself, which of course, I think in those days it was moderately expensive, but she just got it herself. But this is, this is something that we deal with. Yeah, and and how dumb of them because now they're gonna have to pay for whatever it costs to, for her to go to the emergency room before they could just give somebody a prescription. It's just dumb. Well, I think they've probably yeah. done actuarial studies, Bliss, and found that when you tell people they have to go to the emergency room or something, they won't go. And then they save yeah. and, and then they save having to write the pay for that prescription for the next three months or whatever. Crazy. I know, I know. Um, yeah, we talked about central lines and TPN. Okay. So that, you know, so, um, again, it's very common. There's so many things that you can do for the 90% of women who have early nausea that don't have true hyperemesis gravidarum. Mm-hmm. And we, and we should do those things. And, he, and ideally you want to do it before they're even pregnant. You want to start them on these good habits and these small meals and these protein and, and, you know, the things that you talked about earlier. You don't have yeah. to wait till you're pregnant to eat like that. 
Yeah. And the, and the only thing I wanted to add to that is if you are pregnant with multiples, you're like, I've mentioned in previous podcasts, you're going to need more protein. So, um, that brewer's, um, diet that I've mentioned before, it's a good resource. If you're, if you're, um, needing help with adding more protein to your diet, because you need more, it will help with your nausea. Um, that's a good resource to go to. Okay. Okay. Well, it was great to see you. Yeah. I just want to give our listeners a heads up. And I think next week we're going to try to get into this American Academy of Pediatrics article. Yeah. Um, called the risks of infectious diseases in newborns exposed to alternative perinatal practices. Pretty so, much everything we do. Pretty much everything that we do. The, the American yeah. Academy of Pediatrics has put out a report and I want to go through it because obviously this is going to be what mainstream pediatricians are going to be reading and thinking and trying to counsel people. And so we should be aware of what they're reading. Right. 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 And then I forgot to add that the birth that we did, that I did yesterday, that I assisted on yesterday uh, with Alex, our buddy, um, our buddy. was my 400th. Um, oh, wow. Actual home birth. Yeah. Well, I keep a log. I might have missed a few, but that's the 400 actual home birth. That's not how many people have come into care. Probably twice that many people have come into care. I've had a lot yeah. of people who, you know, were transferred out or ended up, you know, whatever, because of the, maybe not twice as many, but I've had probably a couple hundred more, but, you know, the, so, but it's a, uh, you know, it, for some reason we find even numbers to be a milestone. So it's a milestone. <laughs> celebrate. That's yeah. Cause awesome. I, I started keeping a log like you guys do. The minute I started doing home births, as I've said, maybe before on the podcast, doctors who do hospital births have no idea how many births they've done because they don't keep track of it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. When I was in school, they recommended one of the teachers that I really liked recommended keeping a diary of all of the births and like writing down like my thoughts and God, what a beautiful thing to <laughs> How do. How long did that last? Like not long, but yeah. God, I wish I had because that you could just turn that into a book. That would be so easy. But anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. looks good, well, good to see you've got some beautiful sunlight coming in behind you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I have a, I have a whole day of working, which I, I haven't had in a long time. So, um, I'm excited to, to talk to people and put my hand on some bellies later on. And it's going to be a good day. Oh, who, who can I ask who you're collaborating with down there? I'm not collaborating with anybody. I have a client, um, who's due on February 14th. And then I have, um, I have a bunch of consults and calls with people. You do. Oh, yeah. that's, that's so exciting. That's great. Yeah. So are you yeah. gonna are you gonna just you're basically working out of home because you're going to their homes? Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. All home, all home stuff right now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, congratulations on that. Thank you, sweetie. Um, I look forward to talking to you soon. I will see you next time. Okay, bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Birthing Instincts podcast. We know that we all lead busy lives, so we are extremely grateful that you give us an hour of your time each week. If you enjoyed this episode, please share. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast for the latest updates and reviews. To help others join us, you can find Dr. Stu at Birthing Instincts and Bliss at Birthing Bliss Midwifery on Instagram. 